Welcome to the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. My name is Scott Wham. I'm the Director of Compliance and Innovation here at One Digital's Philadelphia office. And I am really excited for today's presentation. We've got a guest that One Digital is so lucky to have on our team, uh, an individual who who used to work on the other side of the ledger, but now has seen the light and come to our side to help employers really navigate some of the more complex questions in, in healthcare. Today, I'm joined by Mason Ellerby. He's our lead executive for High Value Health here at One Digital. Mason, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you take a second and tell people how you got to One Digital. I, I love your story. I love where you came from. G- give us some insight. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, talking about change in size from now being involved with with fighting the battle from from one Digital's perspective. The quick history there is I worked for roughly 30 years in the healthcare system, health delivery system side, basically with what used to be hospital companies. Now they're called health systems because of their integration and effort to expand, et cetera. But I did a variety of roles in 22 of those 30 years was with Atrium Health here in Charlotte. They were Carolina's healthcare system when I joined them in 1998. And um, they became Atrium not that long ago, and now they've merged with Advocate Health, which is showing you how these systems are tending to get bigger and bigger as part of their strategy. And we could probably go through and describe that that's not always driven by their efforts to be more responsive and higher value for their patients, but more a matter of business-driven decisions that I respect, but kind of am a little bit sideways with in the way I'm looking at things, trying to represent um, and deliver higher value health for employers, uh, particularly our one digital middle market employers that are frankly trying to compete in their businesses. And people are a big part of that competitive uh, strategy and a required resource, but it's an increasingly expensive and hard to find, hard to retain resource. And the health benefits that we are helping them put in place are far too often a source of frustration rather than a source of reward for their employees. And that's just a broken system. And I think it's worthwhile for us to spend some time in kind of the history behind how and why it became that way. And then we can get into some of the ideas we may be, we are pursuing uh, to, uh, to challenge that status quo, if you will. Yeah. So Mason, I think that, you know, when we're out in the world working with employer clients and we're trying to paint a picture of some of the pressures that they're feeling as a plan sponsor of trying to manage costs in an ecosystem of consolidation uh, where health systems are coming together, talk about why that's picked up, why we're seeing that. And and you alluded to this earlier, you know, it might be driven more by business than it is a quest for achieving optimal health outcomes in a value-based model. But can you give us some some perspective on how we got to this space of hyper consolidation? Yeah. yeah, and if you don't mind before we get too far into the health system side of that and their expansion and integration uh and positioning if you will, remember we've also got the financing arm of it. I refer to the Bucas as the Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna. The basically the big insurance companies that have evolved substantially over time. All of this started in the 50s under labor uh, wage and price freezes that were required and employers started putting in place fringe benefits in order to compete for people. That's a conversation for a whole nother podcast. But from that developed and evolved a, a health insurance marketplace for employers to 
go into that marketplace and buy coverage for their employees as a way to have the employees choose to work for them. So it's just a it's a benefit. And those benefits have evolved and become more complicated and sophisticated over time. And we've been involved in that. The real issue there is in most markets, you know, whether you're going to buy a gallon of gasoline, the consumer knows the price. They can understand and have pretty good information about the quality differences. And they're using their own money, <laughs> if you will. In health and insured health, there's very little or no information really about price at the consumer's individual patient's perspective. There's very little information that's any good at all about the differential quality. Um, people tend to assume that if I go to my doctor, I'm going to get good direction and good care. And it's pretty similar if I went to another doctor. I can just tell you that ain't the truth at all. There's huge variation. And I'm not blaming any of those doctors. It's just some are better than others, like most things, especially you get into surgery and things like that. Um, there are doctors that'll do uh, you know, 10 or 15 knee replacements a year. And there are doctors who do 300 a year that really are proficient, have a team, and they do it as a well-oiled machine. And it outcomes are differentially better, um, not only for the patient's clinical outcome, but they also are much more efficient, have fewer complications, and therefore much lower cost. There's so much waste involved in these things. And the consumer is not engaged in a way that they can make effective, smart decisions. And they don't even have the money side of it in their control. They're not spending their own money. But the, you know, the gist of that really comes down to how am I as a, as a patient, given my benefit plan, what kind of direction and information am I getting from either the insurance entity, health, the BUCA, as I like to refer to them, or from the health system? How, what kind of information? And can I trust that to be in my interest versus in an alternative and, and those parties' interest? And unfortunately, I think the way the system has evolved, that the insurance companies are in a position to do what's in their interest and help them sell to employers. And they also have a working relationship with the big health systems that is expensive and the incentives are misaligned, but higher costs drives more revenue, actually, for the insurance companies. Um, they usually are getting paid a percentage of the total spend, not a spread between what they quote as a premium and what they spend as an insurance company. That's poorly understood often, but the dynamics of that are have created an environment where Nobody's focused on making sure that the patient's getting the care in a timely and effective manner from the high cost, um, from, excuse me, from the high quality, uh, high value providers of care. So let me, let's take a step back to your previous life real quick mm -hmm. and talk about two concepts that I think are really important for uh, anyone who has any type of responsibility with managing plan costs at an employer to understand. And the first concept is fee for service. And then the second concept is an accountable care organization. Can we start with a definition of what fee-for-service is and why it's important for a plan sponsor to understand the fee-for-service ecosystem? Absolutely. The fee-for-service basically means when you go to the doctor or the doctor sends you to the hospital or to the imaging center or to the lab, all of that activity, everything that the doctor does has got a code and the code goes on to a bill that gets sent to the insurance company that gets administered based on your benefit plan and the doctor gets paid or the imaging center gets paid or the hospital gets paid on a fee for service basis. So if you go present to the doctor with some, let's just say new onset of back pain, Scott, you're like, man, I did something over the weekend and hurt my back. 
and you go to the to your primary care doctor, best evidence, if he's really following, if your doctor's really following that best evidence, he or she uh, would be to treat you conservatively with some Advil type or some ice, possibly some therapy, but to not go order an MRI and do a lot of imaging or certainly not refer you to a back surgeon just because you show up with back pain. But in a FIFA service world, the doctor is often managed, especially if that doctor is attached to a big health system and expected to see a whole lot of patients every day. So you come in, you say, I got back pain. The easiest thing for the doctor to do is to refer you, get a bunch of testing and have you get in the system with that back pain diagnosis. Uh, it's a legitimate diagnosis. It may very well be something significant, but 80% plus of the time, the back pain resolves within six weeks and you don't need to go and get all that other stuff. And in fact, it would be contraindicated, as the docs would say, for you to go get those things until you've had an opportunity to, to use the conservative care and see if that pain will subside. It's much more cost effective, much more clinically effective to let you heal on your own with some support rather than going and churning the whole system up. But under FIFA service medicine, the incentives are to do, 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 to churn and utilize that patient's diagnosis to generate a lot of revenue. Insurance companies pay it or deal with it or administer it. And the hospitals and the doctors, that's their source of revenue. And it's it's easier to do a lot to one patient than to go find other patients and manage them proactively and, and more cost effectively. You know, one of the, I, I'm a lawyer by trade and and one of the, the terms that drives me absolutely insane is this concept of defensive medicine. <laughs> when we exist in a fee-for-service system, right? So, so one of the lines that I hear you know, when I'm down in Washington, D.C., is that we can solve the nation's problems by essentially implementing caps on punitive damages and what are fairly rare jury awards in the civil proceeding. Now, call me a skeptic. I don't think that solves the nation's healthcare problems. But the yeah, more but- you know, things things that tend to have a more reasonable explanation tend to be the explanation. And, and you know, where I, I where I tend to fall is in a fee for service model. There's an incentive to deliver more care. And traditionally, how does fee for service manifest in a traditional Buka, Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna health sure. plan? You know, what 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 does the traditional administration of a plan that's tied to some type of fee for service model look like? Yeah, and I'll just have to quickly say defensive medicine and blaming the attorneys is very convenient politically. Um, and we're, we're not a likable bunch, so I get it. Well, <laughs> you know, most of the people that are throwing you the lawyers under the bus know that they have guilt on their hands and they sure would like to at least have somebody else in that boat with them or to blame them. But I would say that FIFA service medicine, and, and again, I want to remind myself every time we have this conversation, type of conversation is that I am describing what is in place and has happened and not blaming the people that are there. They're doing the things that they're paid to do by a system that evolved. Nobody set out with evil intent to create this mess. Some so might I say just, it. Some might say it metastasized. Good term. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, and in in um, unanticipated ways, uh, it was not strategically laid out to go. Let's go build this huge you know, pushing 20% of the GDP of the country that we're going to spend all this money uh, and have very limited results and value coming from it, it it metastasized, you know, from the the ways of we're doing things and came out of a lot of circumstances, influences, you know, the great society and Medicare coming along created more value, more, you know, it, it, we can go a lot of places when we describe the root cause. I think what's important for us to think about today is 
what is the, the, the basic health plan that most employers put in place? They get it through a VUCA or some variation thereof, and it involves a large network of providers. Most of the doctors and hospitals in a community are in the Blue Cross or pick up another plan. They're in the network. They get credentialed. There's no different, very little differentiation between the doctors and their specialties. They're just in the network. And the patient basically has coverage. 20% of the patients actually use their coverage each year. 80% are pretty healthy and aren't paying much attention. Don't even need it from one year to the next. Eventually they will. But it, it runs in that kind of situation. So there's not a lot of frequency of utilization. But when you need it, you need it. And when you have symptoms and uncertainty about your health, you know, you need to go and pre present to a doctor, an emergency room, a unit, urgent care, a hospital, and you have no effective guidance as to where you should go, when you should go, and who you should go see. The system simply gives you coverage and lets you on a, it's almost a freedom of choice kind of basis, make a lot of mistakes. And that's my perspective on it. I'm not against freedom of choice by any means, I, you know, but when there's no good information about quality, when there's no, most of us, unless you're, you know, have a nurse or a doctor in your family, have very little clinical insights as to, man, I'm not feeling so good today. wonder what I should do. That, you know, and you fill in the blank on any other type of scenario, your child or a mother expecting the level of, you know, concern becomes, you know, different and intensified and you you want to make sure you're responding effectively. So there's a lot of overcare, um, overutilization of care because people, oh, no, I need to go to the emergency department. Well, no, you don't. But you didn't know. And there was no guidance and support. And also people don't go. And whatever they have could have been treated at a low level of cost and intensity. But because they defer it, it becomes more complicated and therefore more expensive uh, and troublesome and clinically challenging for the patient to be treated, to be cared for. So the systems just don't reward us being proactive relative to someone's health. So in, in a fee-for-service ecosystem, I mean, that's a bonanza, right? If you have individuals who who necessarily know how to navigate the clinical setting that they find themselves in or to navigate the, the diagnosis they're facing or let alone cross-examine somebody who has you know X number of years of school, X number of years in residency, and especially in something that some of us can barely even spell, you know, expecting somebody to have that that clout and sitting in the room and 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 be concerned about the plan sponsor's dollar as well is probably a bit of a pipe dream. But let's talk real quick about accountable care organizations because I mm -hmm. think that this is going to get to where you are today and 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 talking about the value of care and and how we get to a place of of making sure people are getting the right care at the right price at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so what's what's an ACO? Talk to, talk to us about an ACO. Sure. And just so to, again, back to the background piece, uh, when at, at Atrium, I spent about a third of my career negotiating the managed care contracts with the Buca firm. So I got deep into all the nuances of that stuff. I spent another third of my career working uh, with the cardiovascular service line. So I got deep into the clinical aspects of, of, uh, of that specialty. And then the last piece of my work there, I was the, I led the project and became the chief operating officer for the atrium owned ACO, Carolina's Physician Alliance. It was 2,700 doctors who, over half of whom were uh, employed by atrium. The others were independent practices. We all came together, recognizing that they could collaborate with each other, communicate about the patients, 
um, identify opportunities to create a standard for new onset of loan back pain. That example I gave you earlier came straight from my work with Carolina's Physician Alliance, where the doctors got together and said, this is the way we ought to to take care of low back pain when it presents in a conservative manner that's higher value. And so an ACO is designed to allow physicians to work together to solve problems, to address quality and value uh, in, in examples like that, to take care of patients as primary care front end in a more proactive way to identify those who have various chronic diseases, make sure you're tracking those patients in a smart, effective, preemptive or proactive way so that you care for them uh, before they get sick, really, before they get more complications that are necessary. And that's a a structure that came out of the Obamacare legislation in 2010 that allowed for these ACOs to be established. And Medicare is actually driving care of Medicare patients towards entities that are organized around an ACO model. Um, There's also Medicare Advantage, which is a commercially administered version of the Medicare value-driven models for that utilize uh, and contract with ACOs and seek to hold the provider community, the doctors and the hospitals, accountable for the total cost of the care of a population of patients. So you hear about the term population health. It really comes into a, it's a methodology for identifying patients in a population that have risk and then proactively managing that risk so that the care is more cost-effective and frankly, better for the people. So when you think about an ACO model and, you know, I, I, I go to countries like France that have a single payer system where, where physicians are, there's compensation structures set up for them to get people to quit smoking. There's compensation structures set up for them to uh, manage diabetes effectively. There's compensation structures set up to, to uh, in other words, the incentive to over-treat is significantly less in France than it would be in a fee-for-service model that's that's typified in the United States. You know, the, the joke I hear is if you go see a French doctor and you're in your 50s and you say you got back pain, they say, you know, take a Tylenol and have a glass of wine. You know, that's such as <laughs> life, right? You know, you, you know that, that's what happens, right? What are the headwinds to engaging at a system level ACO? You know, what is what is it like getting a, a major health system to agree to a pay for performance contract to to get upside risk in place with a with a physician's group what type of headwinds would would somebody encounter trying to set up that type of structure i think what i'm going to describe is basically what i ran into in my efforts when we we put a carolina's physician alliance together we put the aco together here uh the physician leaders that got involved really believe and they know they know better than you and i'll ever figure out where all the how much waste there is how much time they have to spend chasing administrative stuff that isn't valuable clinically to anyone. So they're adamant and passionate about trying to find ways to be rewarded for providing high value care and as opposed to chasing the the RVUs, which is the term for the uh, relative value units that Medicare uses to, to traditionally to bill. And so do all the BUCAs. They use these codes that pay you on a fee-for-service model. So there's a lot of interest in and knowledge of how to do this differently. But the real problem that you're asking is all wrapped up in what is the safest way for me to manage my health system for the next quarter and the next year with the most confidence and the less uncertainty and stick into what we've always done. We're do, we know exactly, we, the hospital, know exactly how we're doing under our fee-for-service contracts with the BUCAs. We know how much volume there is. We can see that coming through, and we'll know we'll get paid 
you know, under these terms and conditions accordingly. To transition over to a risk or value-driven model is very difficult for them to project. It's also very difficult, and this I have a lot of respect for. Some smart doctors have said, Mason, I can't go to work every day and see 20 patients, and three of them are on a value-based contract, and I think about them differently, and the other 17 are still in a fee-for-service environment, and I'm somehow going to practice care in a different way. That, that's distasteful for us to even suggest that to a, to a doctor who's you know, trained to do well by and for his patients. But the systems, frankly, that, uh, that is the case. And so the transition is stuck because the incumbent fee-for-service model is well entrenched. There's huge amounts of investments in managing the BUCA's claim systems and the healthcare systems, revenue cycles that are all involved in the backroom part of this and are very expensive when you add it all up. They just get in the way for us to innovate and embrace new models. So I want to start transitioning a little bit to what this actually means for a plan sponsor. You know, we describe these competing interests, right? That that may only be interests, if not intentional, if not, uh, uh, you know, the way anyone set out to build the American healthcare system. But there are these competing interests, you know. The hospital has rent, you know, as much as I will chuckle, want to hear tort reforms, the cure for all of our ills, insurance costs are high for, for liability insurance, taxes go up, salaries go up, you know, it's difficult for systems to attract and retain frontline staff. We know we have a major shortfall of primary care physicians in the country that is, that is really starting to come to a head and it's going to take a lot of creativity. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the creativity that we're seeing, at least yeah. in our world with primary care. But I remember, I, you know, I've been in the industry now, I'm entering my 12th year and I left a law firm, came came to work for a, a company that was fortunate enough to join the one digital family of companies about right. four years ago. And when I first came into the industry, the, the rage was high deductible health plan. And we're going to turn individuals into healthcare consumers. Now, again, People hate lawyers for a lot of really good reasons, but I'll at least tell you what my billable hour is going to be, right? I'll at least give you a sense. I, some lawyers may not tell you how, how many hours they're going to bill, but they're going right. to give you some, some starting point. You know, I remember when I came into the industry, the move was we're going we're gonna to save money by increasing deductibles, setting up health savings accounts, and then sending the average American out into the world to be an, a, a consumer of healthcare to have skin, you know, air quotes, skin in the game, to negotiate, to shop, to do all those things. But when I got out in the world as somebody who didn't come from this ecosystem, mm-hmm. I found it almost impossible to achieve any of those objectives. Finding the price, you call a doctor's office. What's how much is this going to cost? I don't know. You know, uh, uh, cross-examining a physician. Who are you to cross-examine me? This is what I think the course of actions should be, right? To talk to me about healthcare consumerism and what you, you know, what your take on it is from the employee perspective and the realities of that versus what you would say as being a more thoughtful approach to consumerism, if that makes sense. Yeah, boy, Scott, why don't you load a few more things in that one question? But, yeah, um, that was that was that was a compound no, question I, on, on top no. of a compound question. <laughs> well, no, and and, and I, I get that, and it, it, you you posed it, and frankly, in quite effective way. But there are a couple of places I need to go, and if I forget some aspects of your question, you might have to remind me. I'm I'm not a spring chicken, as they said. First of all, the cost structure on the hospital side or the health system, delivery system side, particularly whether post-COVID or since COVID labor markets, uh, 60% of a hospital's cost are salaries or are people. 
So as you can imagine, you know, nurses are, you know, having all this dumped on them, burning out that whole litany. So the labor challenges that are in the economy in general are specialized and more acute, if I can borrow that term, in the healthcare delivery system side. I got a lot of respect for that. That's not an easy thing for them to do. They can't keep the floor open. Their units that have inpatient hospital beds even open unless they have sufficient staff. So that's a hard, hard thing to do. And the margins of the hospital business are, are not fat uh, in general, you know, in, in general. You know, you mentioned primary care doctors being, you know, under supply, over demand. And that is absolutely accurate, particularly if you assume we're going to continue to pay for that care in the same way. And we're going to continue to deliver that care in the same way. So, and the, what I'm trying to say there is the primary care doctor who sees a patient for 20 minutes gets paid largely the same thing for that 15 or 20 minute office visit, whether the patient visit is very important and valuable, or whether it's a worried well patient who doesn't really need to be seeing a doctor, but could have been cared for by a nurse if even needed at all. But the doctor's incentive systems don't differentiate that. So I believe that there is technology, there's probably AI applications that are going to help us with some of these things, where when we're thinking about a population of patients, Doctors got, let's just say, two or 3,000, 2,000 patients in their panel that consider them to be their primary care doctor today, and you move forward into a different type of model. That same doctor, particularly if you partner him with a team, him or her with a team of nurse practitioners and others that can help identify, they as a team may be able to manage four or 5,000 patients in a population if they have good insights into each of those patients. They know which patients are vulnerable, at risk. They can monitor those patients. They can actually include wearable technology to tell them, you know, a heart failure patient managing their weight is very important because they, if the weight goes up, that means their heart's not doing well and they're gaining fluids and then they could get in real trouble from that. So you can get a Bluetooth scale in someone's bathroom, ask them to step on the scale every morning and you're up to what date on whether they're managing their heart failure. Well, that's not real complicated. But it can be very valuable because if the patient's weight goes up three pounds, a nurse can call them and ask them if they took their meds and if they didn't take two tomorrow and get them back on track. I'm, those are real examples. I'm not oversimplifying. Those are real examples of things that can be done proactively. But guess what? If you do that in a fee-for-service model, you get paid nothing for that care. It's brilliant. It's valuable care. It's proactive. The patient doesn't even have to come to the office. But if the patient doesn't come to the office, you don't have anything to bill them for. Therein lies the challenge and the opportunity. The system is strained in a supply and demand perspective because of our traditional way of providing and financing that care. If we're allowed to embrace care in some other ways and use information and to be more proactive with these patients, we can care for them from their own home. They don't have to come to the office, much less the hospital. Some will. Clearly, there's going to always be patients that need acute care and, and surgeries and those things. But we got to quit making it about inefficiently delivered and sometimes even inappropriately delivered surgeries. When the patient could have been managed in a different way, the diagnosis may not be accurate. There's all sorts of flaws in the system that don't get uncovered. Patients, uh, physicians that have a complication rate in their surgery that's 4% when the national average for that same type of patient is 2%. You don't know that. You wouldn't know that. Maybe unless one of your lawyer buddies told you about it because they had them in a case. But the point really is, 
That's a huge difference. The higher complication rate is exceptionally expensive, both clinically and financially. And nobody is out there tracking that information. Nobody's holding that doctor accountable for understanding why his infection rates are bad and, and to, for him to get better. There's real opportunity here to improve everybody's game, but you've got to, everybody's got to be responding to what would typically in business be a market forces. If you're not very good, you're not going to get much business. If you charge too much, you're not going to get much business. It doesn't happen in healthcare. Thank you.